Hi, you're listening to That Night in Toronto with Vince Savard. An album-by-album, track-by-track, show-by-show review and uh, personal view of the music of the Tragically Hip. So we are at now episode five, Trouble at the Hen House, which is uh, released in uh, May of 1996. And again, zoomed up immediately to the top of the charts and uh, was the hips. Every release of theirs seems to be like the biggest release at the time to date. So, yeah, so we're going to go through Trouble at the Hen House. We'll talk through the songs, we'll the events of, uh, of surrounding it in my life, you know, and any uh, music opportunities and interesting stories I had around around that time. So what was going on in uh, in May of 1996? Well, there were a few things. I think one of the major ones, from my point of view, was um, yeah, we got uh, we got married in May of '96. So it was a uh, it was a quiet, classy uh, soiree with just uh, you know a few friends and uh, close families. I think we topped out at just over. Just either just over, just under a hundred, uh, which I think is big for some, not so big for others. And we have with uh, with the size of some of our families, uh, you know, we managed to keep it under control and do it ourselves. So it was it was a great time. We really we really did enjoy it. And then, you know, for a honeymoon, my wife went back to uh, back to university, and I went back to work. So at the time, work was getting more and more about about technology and software. And from this time forward, uh, my life really started to change in interesting ways, particularly in the fall and, and in September. So I was traveling a lot more for work and a lot of the work I was doing was around um you know, it was around the technology I was working with rather than actual writing, you know, technical documentation for uh, for airplanes. And we had built some interesting, you know, technology. We built some ways of delivering this information electronically. And we had convinced ourselves that we actually had a chance to maybe resell this to other people. So as a result of this and days, like probably about you know, total of two weeks before uh, my wedding was going to take place, uh, I and a colleague flew over from Edmonton to uh, Germany to Cologne, and then from there to Gelenkirchen, which is where uh, NATO had a base for their uh, AWACS planes. And AWACS is that, um, you probably saw some pictures around uh, of them where it looks like a kind of a regular commercial airliner with a giant Frisbee bolted on top. Well, we were trying to uh, to sell to that group. So yeah, so I got my passport, took my first flight over to um, Germany, had a good meeting, you know, stayed an extra day in Germany, got absolutely blind drunk with my colleague at, um, this is the same one that I went to, uh, to Pink Floyd with. We got absolutely hammered in Aachen uh, after having a good presentation. And then I kind of just lay in my hotel bed, hung over the next day where I could have gone to see Cologne, but just, just stayed and slept because it had been exhausting and then flew home where I got, uh, I, I was victim to, you know, combining fatigue and, uh, and, uh, and the altitude and the movies. I was like, uh, and the emotion of getting married soon. I was an emotional wreck. I was watched. I can remember distinctly watching father of the bride two, and, uh, with Steve Martin, I think Mary Steenburgen, uh, was playing his wife at the time. No, it might've been, might've been someone else, but it was about, okay, now both mother and daughter are, are pregnant, which of course, yeah, that makes complete sense. Uh, and, uh, bed of roses, which is, uh, which was a, you know, was a, it was a Christian Slater movie made around then, which was again, just sort of, uh, weepy. And normally I, I just don't, those, those things just don't work on me, but this one absolutely did. So, 
yeah, traveling for business was fun because we ended up doing because we worked with the Department of Defense. We had to do a lot of travel from Edmonton to to Ottawa. And I always wanted to take uh, any airline other than Air Canada. So I wanted an independent one. I like the idea of you know supporting a smaller one, particularly with a Western origin. And I flew what was then called Canadian Airlines a lot. And they didn't have a lot of direct flights. So I used to have to go through Ottawa to get to um you know, to get, or you used to have to go through Toronto to get to Ottawa or, or, or Toronto to get to Montreal and, uh, was always, you know, hopping about. And, um, one night, uh, both myself and my colleague, our flights were tremendously delayed. So we're already flying, you know, it's about like a three and a half hour flight. You lose two hours flying East. So we got in the car very late, got to our t- hotel very late, you know, Stopped out front, unloaded our, our suitcases. I went into check. I went into uh, inside to check in. Went up to my room, you know, climbed into bed and went to sleep. Woke up the next morning and was in the shower. Realized that, oh no, I left the car out front. And then went to the front desk and said, yeah, we had a car there for a while. We didn't know whose it was. It wasn't registered to any room, so uh, we had a towed. So before we made our, our meeting, which, you know, for anybody who's had anything to do with uh, any branches of the military service, you know that their punctuality is a big thing with them. They do like to have people there on time. So we had to grab a quick bite, find out where the impound lot was, get the car, get it out of the impound and then get to our meeting, which we did, you know, just about. But it was uh, it was a close run thing. And uh, it was one of the only times where I was able to uh, expense both the ticket and impound fees uh, as part of a car rental. So there was lots of um, lots of dynamism and challenge around these trips to Ottawa. It was where my uh, my boss at the time sort of started my baptism of fire about being a, uh, you know, a comfortable public speaker by dumping all of a presentation on me when I was supposed to just give the demo. And two minutes before the demo was supposed to go on, the whole system crashed and just wasn't working. And uh, the only thing I can say is thankfully this was in the early, early days of Windows 95, where most people weren't aware of the, uh, the alt tab function to swap between Windows. Windows. So I was able to pull off a pretty convincing demo on a completely broken piece of software and deliver slides while only looking like I was going to faint f- for about two thirds of it. But, you know, it turns out to be something I, uh, I enjoyed and ended up being you know quite good at. So, yeah, so there was a lots of, you know, the business travel, the parts that are exciting around business travel are never the travel itself, because normally it's a cab somewhere followed by a flight, followed by a cab somewhere else, followed by a night in a hotel, followed by a cab somewhere else again. And, you know, on and on and on and on and on you go. Um, the uh, sort of the longest time it took us to get anywhere was when we went to um, we went to do some training and enablement in Comox, which is in the northern part of Vancouver Island. So we all flew from Edmonton to Vancouver, Vancouver to Victoria, Victoria to Campbell River, and then Campbell River to Comox. In well, not progressively smaller planes. We got um, you know we were in a you know seven thirty seven A three twenty size plane to Vancouver, then a prop plane to Victoria, and then a prop the same prop plane from Victoria to uh, to uh, Campbell River, and then finally to to Comox. So we 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 got there in the end, and uh, you know we 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 go on Comox and. Oh, I got to tell you, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit backwoodsy there, a little bit of a, a bit of a kind of a deliverance vibe at the uh, at the bar. But uh, but on the whole, you know, it was a it was a fun time. It was you know we were relatively, you know, it was pretty young. We uh, we had a group of people who got on uh, with uh, you know with each other, so we had a good time traveling and and deliver these delivering the training. And uh, you know, the work was good too, but the travel was fun and it was great.
So a lot of things going on when uh, when Trouble at the Hen House came out. And I remember at the time the critical reception was a bit mixed. You know, it was, um, I remember, and it might've been, I think this happened, but, um, you can't always be sure, but the, uh, the music critic for the Edmonton journal, uh, was really questioning the wisdom of the hip releasing another introspective kind of slow down intense album on the heels of, of day for night when, you know, very much a different vibe to the, you know, the, the, the previous three in, uh, you know, in, in up to here road apples and fully completely, but you know, as, as we'll go through and as we'll talk about it, I think it still remains a massively strong album. And again, you look at uh, you look at the first four songs on this album and you put them up against any first four songs on any album. It uh, it definitely is a, uh, you know, is, is a great album. It won lots of Juno Awards, sold out, you know, sold massive amounts of copies. Their their concerts were sold out. Uh, as it went. So it was, uh, it was good. And this was, again, the, um, you know, they also worked with uh, Mark Verkeen as the producer. Uh, they recorded it uh, at New Orleans uh, and, uh, and in Bath, Ontario, which I've never been to before. I, I never even was aware there was a Bath. I knew there was a London in Ontario and a Kingston in Ontario and, uh, and that, but I wasn't aware that there was a Bath. So, Trouble at the Hen House, uh, released on, on May 7th, 96 on MCA Records, ran uh, 52 minutes, 34 seconds. So not not a tremendously long album, you know, 12 tracks, but, uh, you know, but a very good album and a kind of a, you know, a neat, at least a recognizable thing of a dog on the, um, you know, on, on the album cover. And again, Trouble at the Hen House, not a song called that, not a first of a song called that. So apropos of nothing, there was this, uh, there was a title. So let's get into the, uh, let's get into that. And actually we have one piece of errata that we have to do. Uh, I did get some letters and we'll go into the mailbag when we get to the, uh, you know, the end of the episode. But, uh, but it turns out I forgot a song off of day for night, which, you know, shame on me. It, uh, it, it is just not right. We, I forgot emergency, which is weird because I have it all written out and I have them all in order. But somebody pointed out that you forgot emergency and was wondering if it was deliberate. Uh, no, no, it wasn't deliberate. It was a uh, lack of competence. I've been getting to a place where I was recording, you know, all recording, mixing and getting it all out in one night. And I think this is a sort of um, you know, quality control issue that you run into when you, you get everything through. So hopefully I'll get all of it. and won't like leave out randomly, you know, coconut cream or Sherpa uh, when we get close to the end of the album. So let's uh, let's 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 go without any further ado into uh, into trouble at the hen house. Okay. Well as we start out with this album we actually have a little bit of a leftover from last podcast. As Jared Bice pointed out, I completely missed Emergency off of Day for Night. So I'll let's go through this and have a look at it. We're getting close to the end of the record, and Emergency is one of those minor jams that keep things moving, but hasn't made it into the recurring canon of hip songs that have a long life in live shows. So it's a transition on to the last couple of songs in Titanic Terrarium and Impossibilium, but doesn't really leave a splash of its own. And with that, we are now finished with Day for Night. And with that, we now get into Trouble at the Hen House. 
which starts off with gift shop. So when Gord introduces a song, he lets us know that Gift Shop is inspired by and is sometimes about the Grand Canyon. You know, I've, I've had, I, well, I've had, I've been to Vegas a couple of times for work, but I've never taken the time to go to the Grand Canyon. But I think when you, you hear, especially when you get to the chorus and he talks about after a glimpse over the top, the rest of the world becomes a gift shop because you, you see the Grand Canyon and suddenly the rest of the world seems small in comparison. And I think maybe the difference with the Grand Canyon versus other natural sites like Victoria Falls or the Himalayas, you, you don't have to, it's there. You can get to it, you can experience it closely and then get back to the rest of your life. So it does feel like we're exiting through the rest of the gift shop. And in that way, maybe kind of an interesting way to open up the whole album. We have this quiet, slow build until they drop the beat. And it's, it's amazing how much this is, as I'm going through the catalog, how much it gets close between what the hip do and now EDM does. Because then we talk about the pendulum and it all drops and it gets big. And it's the exact same thing as when you're waiting for the beat to drop on something by uh, Avicii or Marshmallow. It is, a, it is an excellent way to start the album and does take us, it, it, it begins a build that goes from here. And takes us on to springtime in Vienna. And even when you're when you're listening to the album on CD or that it actually flows one into the next with almost no break. I think if you bothered to rip it or have it as digital form, you can hear more of a break in it. But there there are a few hip songs where the intro to the next song is tagged into the uh, you know tagged to the end of the song before. So springtime in Vienna. Gord told. Uh, you know, mentioned that in, in 2005 that the title of the song was derived from a, a quip that Gord Sinclair made after the band overheard a couple arguing while walking in New Orleans, where they obviously, you know, recorded a number of albums. It's saying it's like springtime in Vienna. And I'm I'm just wondering, what, how is New Orleans like Vienna? I mean, I've been to both places. I've been lucky enough to have been to both places. And New Orleans was hot and humid. And I, I don't care what anybody says. Bourbon Street in New Orleans smells not just a little bit. It smells a lot like barf. I mean, the aroma of Bourbon Street was unmistakable. Whereas Vienna is, you know, one of the most European cities you're likely to be. Even if you're, even if you're not going to go there and have a soccer tort, which is that um, really dense chocolate uh, chocolate tart that uh, that is Vienna's famous for. It just has a wonderful feel to it. When we get, we get to the end of this one, I might tell a couple stories about my travels through Austria with friends, or I may wait till they're in the right sequence of hip albums. But at any rate, um, yeah, it, again, it has this great building dynamic feel to it, and it builds and it contracts and builds as we go through the 
through the songs, you know, talking about the territorial pispo or pisspots as you would pronounce it, because it's not really a French word. And then, you know, we live to survive our paradoxes. We go through the chorus and then we dial it all back down. So this is tremendous dynamic range in the song that uh, that you hear in live performances as well. So it's a beautiful place to be. And I recommend that if you get there in the spring, fall, I mean, winter might be a bit cold, but, uh, but if you do get a chance to get to Vienna, I would highly recommend it. The whole of Austria is, is a bit of a wonderful place. And now we are ahead by a century. So as soon as you hear it, you absolutely know this is going to be the biggest song of the album. It starts out, again, quiet and will build throughout. Um, when they play it live, they normally have everybody, you know, but, uh, but Paul Langlois on acoustic guitar. So, you know, so, um, you know, that Gord has one. There's lots of acoustic guitars until we get to the end. And it, it is just a, it's a beautiful song. It is a mainstay of live shows from, you know, from this point till you go forward. And again, we have a crossover with, um, I mean, okay, this is going to take more hops. It's a little bit more like a, uh, you know, six degrees of Kevin Bacon to get to Serapoli from here. But there's a connection to there. So... In addition to the Tragically Hip, one of the other mainstays of Canadian culture and pop culture that Canadians love and other people love as well is um, Anne of Green Gables. So the original Anne of Green Gables uh, was a, you know, was adapted as a, well, the original, obviously the book had been around for a long time, but Anne of Green Gables was adopted as a, um, you know, as a CT, as a CBC series, and you know, was amazingly, incredibly popular. It was, um, I would say, for those you know, for those listeners that are in the UK, it's it's like the um, the first adaptation of Anne of Green Gables is much like the CBC adaptation or the BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. It, it just gets played and played and played, and people watch it and watch it again and again and again. Well, after it was done. The CBC decided that, well, we need to get more mileage out of this. What can we do in the, the Anne of Green Gables extended TV universe? And from that came Road to Avonlea, which had starring as its protagonist, Sarah Poli. Now, you'll remember from Fully Completely that Sarah Poli did a tremendous, tremendously affecting cover of Courage for Hugh McLennan uh, for the soundtrack of uh, The Sweet Hereafter. So she was in Road to Avonlea, and now finally looping the story together, there was recently, in the last couple of years, there was two series of an adaptation of Anna Green Gables called Anne with an E uh, on Netflix. And what did they use as their theme music? What did they use as a theme song? Wow. Don't wake daddy. So in this song, the hip, you know, they, uh, they reference Kurt Cobain reincarnated. And they actually did cross paths in the early 90s. So they were, uh, they're playing at the, um, 
you know, they were the they're double booked in the same you know venue, which would have been, I mean, if I could sacrifice a body part and get a time machine working to go back to that night to see the hip then playing for Nirvana at a small, small gig, ah, would have been amazing. But at any rate, uh, Gord did try to go to meet Kurt, who was you know, who was in the middle of struggling with his addiction problems and just beginning to surge into fame and was, was passed out on a pool table. So who knows what the quality of the gig could be. I mean, you remember the story about uh, Guns N' Roses, and if you're too drunk and too impaired, it's going to be rubbish no matter who you are. So it is, uh, it is there. So it's, it is uh, happened at a place called the OK's Corral, where Nirvana opened for the hip in front of 40 fans, which is just, you know, it's shocking and staggering. But as a song, Don't Wake Daddy has this sort of quiet intensity where you can, you can almost see Gord moving in his, you know, that kind of sort of strange stop and start jerky motion as he looks as if he's balancing on a tightrope suspended over Niagara Falls. And that is the, the intensity and the energy that he brings to the performance. So I think it is a, uh, a terrific song. And now we're four songs in. And I remember when um, reading some of the first reviews of the album, uh, I think it might have been in the Edmonton Journal. I'm not sure where it was. But that said, they're not sure that the hip really needs two introspective albums in a row. So looking at... Uh, you know, at the day for night and trouble the hen houses, maybe bringing things too down, too far down. And I, I just have to say these four songs, and you're going to have to forgive me for repeating myself because actually I came up with this with this thought and this idea to apply to trouble at the hen house, but got through the first four songs at day for night and thought it applied there as well. But I mean, if you look at the first four songs, I mean, you're talking about you know, gift shop, Springtown in Vienna, ahead of by a century, don't wake daddy. I mean. All four could, could be singles, on were singles. Strong songs, and really one of the, you know, any of the strongest four songs to open up a hip album, any of the hip albums, or really anyone's album. So, I don't know what they had in mind. They may have been, um, I've been listening a lot over the last few years, or re-listening to, uh, to R.E.M., I almost get the feeling that the hip had in mind what I heard, uh, you know, Peter Buck say about uh, when they recorded Out of Time, is that but we didn't want to just be, you know, guitar noisy we wanted to we wanted to blow up our career and maybe these last two albums of the hip are them wanting to i mean if not blow up their career then change the dynamics and change the direction and don't wake daddy has a you know a tremendous energy to it and that kind of like i said that restrained balancing over a tight roped feel for it and 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 terrific lyrics like you know you teach your children some fashion sense and they fashion some of their own i mean just Wow, it's a terrific rhyme. I, I don't know what it means, but it it does feel portentous. So, and then we we swoop down into flamenco. So, you know, obviously flamenco in this case is referring to, you know, the dance, not the birds. You know, it's a flamenco, not flamingo. So, and does it diminish your super capacity for love? And, you know, other references to things Spanish about walking like a matador, 
And um, as you might know, the flamenco is is really not just not just Spain, but is primarily from the uh, the region of Andalusia near uh, near Seville and in the southwest Seville and Malaga, that part of you know the Andalusian part of Spain where that comes from. So it is a it is a nice calm sort of wandering song that doesn't really you know obviously. Is very much kind of you can hear it played almost the drums are being played by you know, Johnny May with a being played the drums are being played with like a wire brush to give it that sort of uh, you know sort of a um, you know kind of soft jazzy feel to it and even though it does say flamenco sweep the air it's like not flamingos it's a flamenco so the sweep itself is that you know four finger technique the kind of strummy bits that you hear and that is the the sweeping the air of the flamenco. So we go through four songs that, you know, that, that take us to an amazing place. And then we go into flamenco, which is, which is calm, which is chill, but has that, it, it's of a piece. It fits together. So 700 foot ceiling is, you know, I, it is one of those things where it's, uh, you know, it's like the ceiling is normally, at least in aviation terms, is how high above the ground the clouds are. So how far can you see above the ground? A 700 foot is really, really low. And, you know, it, it's that, um, it's the sort of thing we're all familiar with as we're kids growing up in a relatively small town in Canada where, what are we gonna do in the evening? Well, let's, you know, let's go outside and you go out and it's cold and the clouds maybe come down and you can see the reflection from the sodium arc uh, street lights, that kind of orange glow that reflects off the clouds. It makes it feel like the the whole of the sky is just sitting down on top of you. You know, and you have beams from street lights and maybe you've got a floodlit, floodlit uh, rink you're, you're walking around on. If it's the right temperature, your breath hangs in the air. So there's all sorts of these kind of Tony Scott-esque smoke filling the air and, and lights going around through the smoke that um, if not quite magical then it, it does make you appreciate the the difference you see in places that have winter versus places like Vancouver or you know quite frankly London who well London has the fog that maybe Vancouver doesn't always get so it does feel like the world is on top of you when the sky is closed in and you're either being crushed or hugged by it it, it depends on how you're feeling it but, uh, but 700 foot ceiling does fit in well, has some great, uh, you know, great things in the chorus. And it, it does keep the thread together because, I, you know, the thing you cannot really accuse a hip of, the hip of is, is not having a theme that they can maintain or is, is consistent throughout an album. And in this case, you know, you absolutely have a, have a piece. You can listen to the, if you listen to the songs in Trouble at the Hen House pay, played individually, you would have no troubles placing them together on a single album. And if you dropped in something either from three albums before or three albums after, it would sound odd and different and just not quite be there. Butts wiggling. So this was a, um, this was a song that was actually on the, uh, the Kids in the Hall movie, which was a, you know, it was, was a slightly moderate success. It wasn't a big one. I mean, again, how, how about of a, a confusion or a collision of Canadian, of Canadiana, modern Canadiana, which is the Tragically Hip and the Kids in the Hall, who went from being a radio show on the CBC to a sketch show on HBO and the CBC to a movie, you know, in, in, in Brain Candy. So, 
and with the hip providing a song to it because of course they did because in my opinion the drug is ready whether the drug is brain candy or not the drug is ready And then we get into the apartment song. So this is a one of the more ballady songs that uh, are on the album. It it feels very much like a, a relationship song. The actually, if you if you listen to this album and you go through from beginning to end, the one thing that isn't in the song is a story. I mean, the apartment song could be the story of a you know a prototypical couple who may stay together or break up and are are talking about their apartment, but there's no stories. There's no references to the group of seven. There's no talk about Bill Barilko. Bobby Orr doesn't get a name check. It is very much a story. uh, It is very much an album without stories. So I've, you go through it and you think, hmm, is there a, uh, a Roman clay? Mm, no. No, it doesn't feel like it. Well, the Canada shooting coconut cream is uh, coconut cream is a there's a goofy song. I mean, there's a Canada shoot. Well, goofy with a not insubstantial potential reference to maybe you know. I suppose you could think of it as maybe, uh, you know, uh, a jet display team like the uh, Blue Angels or the Snowbirds or the Red Arrows on display with, uh, you know, with the uh, the air show smoke going out the back. But um, I think if you talk about a cannon shooting coconut cream 40 gallons in a steady stream, it brings up very, very different images. And, and just in case you were thinking, well, maybe they're not talking about that. You know, are they really talking about that? I'm not so sure. Then you get into the part of the chorus that talks about, you know, all good Christians when they get home from work, uh, ending up in a circle jerk, which I, I don't know. I mean, I know it's a, um, it's a reference to useless and pointless activities and things that people, you know, don't need to do with standing around, you know, satisfying themselves to no real advantage. But I, I just doubt that there has ever been a circle jerk happen in the history of humanity. You know, I just, I simply just can't see it. I refuse to accept that it's happened. Well, all of us Christians in a circle jerk until daddy gets home from work, which just a, a terrifying image to have in any way. So let's just put that aside and we'll get on to the next one. Which is, let's stay engaged which is one that is, again, not loud, but tends to be, you know, starts with the the electric guitars a bit more, but again, has a very slow tempo. There's nothing up-tempo like, uh, you know, like a full, like in, um, you know, on up to here where you've got uh, Blow at High Doe, which has that big, you know, big blowout, or, you know, Courage, which is much more, you know, much more high speed. It, it just all feels contained and restrained. And, you know, some things that you, you keep together. So it is, it is one of those, again, one of those songs that all fits together on this album. 
none of the none of the songs sound like they're coming in from someone else. And I still have to say that you know, Trouble to Hen House is is a terrific album. And I think as a um, you know as a companion piece to uh, Day for Night, you know, fits very well together. And they have no obligation. To, uh, to deliver us anything other than what they're feeling rather than, you know, what we think we need. So I'm glad these um, I'm glad these albums came out before social media and the sense of fan entitlement and fan ownership, which can be, you know, get quite, quite toxic. Sherpa. So Sherpas are Nepalese indigenous peoples. And because they live in Nepal, where, you know, things like the, uh, you know, where the Himalayas are and... Uh, and peaks like Everest are, are well adapted to mountain climbing. Sherpas tend to live around the mountain ranges and, you know, charted the features and explored the different summit routes. And the most famous Sherpa, I think everyone thinks of, is uh, Sherpa Tenzig, who, along with Edmund Hillary, uh, you know, were the first two together to summit Everest in 1953. So, I mean, there are debates of whether Hillary was the first on or whether it was Sherpa Tenzig, but, uh, but I think ultimately it doesn't matter. I don't think uh, Hillary or Tenzing were that, you know, were that precious about it, but they, um, you know, they are ones who are thrive in, you know, in the, the zone of death where others might look to die. And it's, it's really strange to see how, you know, it used to be, I, I cannot remember when it happened, but I remember the first sort of Canadian-led expedition up, uh, up Everest happened when I was, uh, when I was young and, uh, and still living in Canada. And it was, a, it was a really big deal. And now it's, I mean, it's not quite something you do over the, the summer holidays or something, but it isn't, it isn't quite the same. So Sherpa, again, kind of continues the flow through and fits into, you know, being the penultimate song on the album. Uh, until we get into uh, Put It Off, which ends on a bit of a different note, where Sherpa has very much a, uh, you know, a much a feel of some of the previous songs in the album. As I said, it's a really, Trouble to Henhouse is a really strongly thematic album with the, the music really feeling like it all fits together. So Put It Off is, you know, is, uh, is the last song on the album. And carries a personal tone as it as it may have been inspired by the birth of, of one of Gord's children. So it is again a fitting and quiet way to end the album. Uh, and even in the album, it even, uh, you know, as we had a, a couple of songs about the Second World War on the previous album, this one talks about, you know, making degenerate art, which is which is a horrible term and one that was used very much by the uh, by the Nazis during the Second World War to describe. Well, degenerate was a word to describe anything that had a, a Jewish origin. So even science, such as you know, Einstein's uh, theory of general relativity, relativity uh, the uh, the work that he and his peers were doing at the time was it was labeled as degenerate science because it introduced you know quantum mechanics and uh, probability and all of these things that the uh, the Nazis felt were just that's uh, not science. Science is physical and what you can feel. So I guess we can feel the the songs in the album. So we get through to put it off and it, the album ends and kind of trails away as quietly as we can with the the hint of the sitar playing on it, which is again, I mean, the hip never went through like the Beatles in a, uh, you know, a 
taking on a, a, uh, an Asian influence, but this was the, uh, the you know, maybe not the closest it was, but you can certainly hear the, you know, the sitar playing there, and uh, it does give it a, a different feel to it. Just like um, on a head by a century, it, you know, the, uh, the the drum track was actually played and is played live, but it does have the feel of something that was sequenced, which is again, they're not an electronic band. They don't really use sequencing for for these songs together. And with Put It Off, we come to the end of Trouble at the Hen House. So 12 tracks, you know, tipping the Toledo's at 52 and a half minutes. The last two songs, both being over five minutes long. And it really, there are only the three five-minute songs on the album, nothing under three minutes. So no, you know, no really short, sweet songs. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of length to it, a lot of depth to it. So this one, you know, by this time was an automatic entry into number one on the charts. Tours sold out again and again and again. And I didn't uh, I didn't get to see the hip play on this tour, although with their next album, with their live album, when it gets released, I will have listened to it. But uh, but I didn't get to hear them or see them live at this tour. But I think we can all agree that this was uh, this was an album worth listening to and worth having. So as I mentioned that um, I was in up to here that, or no, sorry, day for night, that uh, time living at Edmonton really wasn't filled with a lot of, a lot of gigs, uh, you know, partially because, or actually primarily because we were, you know, we're trying to pay for a wedding. We were, uh, my wife was going through university and, you know, Edmonton at the time, well, I can't say it didn't have anything. It had, um, and the Stones came through, the Who um, I think you too might've played a gig there. I know in the past that Edmonton has had, um, you know, has hosted pretty big, pretty big shows. I mean, I guess Pink Floyd was, uh, was no small one, but this was much more of a year of real personal transformation. So between the release dates of, uh, of Trouble to Hen House and Live Between Us, a huge amount of things changed in my life. So as I said, we got, uh, we got married uh, really when, uh, traveling for work, I, uh, managed to see, uh, a game at the Maple Leaf Gardens before it was torn down. So I sat in a, in a really uncomfortable old school welded steel and, and uh, wooden seat, uh, and, uh, watch the, watch a game take, watch a game take place on the same ice that Bill Barilko, uh, skated out on. So again, another connection to, uh, you know, to, well, why we're all here, I suppose. Um, I made it, got invited to a luxury suite at a uh, AAA baseball game in Ottawa where I made the uh, tremendous mistake of getting, ah, just got, I'm not to say that I drank a lot all the time, but there are times when I really didn't count my beer as well. And um, yeah, that was a very rough night. And the next morning, I'm glad that all I had to do was get through breakfast and fly back because uh, I don't think I could have survived much more than that. Um, and then uh, I went on a, a very interesting sort of double header trip uh, out east. So I went to uh, a trade show called SGML 96, which was a um, well, is now an obscure uh, sort of programming or markup standard, which actually gave birth to the World Wide Web, which is, you know, again, what brings us all here. And um, at that at that event and the week before at a trade show, ran into uh, people in a company that would uh, would eventually take me out of Canada. So by the time Live Between Us had come out, I had changed jobs to work for a U.S. software company, had been to Ann Arbor, Michigan at least twice, uh, 
And, uh, and subsequent to that, I uh, had uh, watched my wife graduate from uh, the University of Alberta. And then the two of us pack up house and move to Seattle, where we would you know, have our first, now we no longer live in Canada place. And, um, and after that, we would, and we'll see here in a couple albums time, saw the Tragically Hip play live at uh, WOMAD in Seattle, which was the second gig I saw of them. I think probably if, um, you know, things like StubHub and uh, Viagogo had been a thing, I probably would have gone to see the hip in Edmonton because I think I probably could have scraped together enough cash to buy some aftermarket tickets. But uh, but it just it really wasn't the thing and it wasn't, it wasn't as easy to do as it, as it is now. And eh, it wasn't quite in the same place, but it was still a very entertaining and transformative part of, uh, you know, part of my life. Uh, met, not met, but kind of got together with uh, Andrew, another friend from, from high school, went to his wedding, uh, went to his um, gift opening the next day where uh, someone I went to high school with, um, when she found out that I only went to state and didn't go to university, kind of turned away and stopped talking to me. But then I did a background check and turns out that, yeah, it's just kind of how it rolls like that. So, you know, it wasn't a big thing. We would spend a lot of time with Andrew and his partner, Janice, uh, in Edmonton. When we came back, we actually spent the uh, the turn of the millennium together. And we'll get to that later. I, I always like to, I seem to want to preview and uh, and drop these things in advance. But, um, but uh, you know, this one I'll keep to myself. So I uh, we traded our... Uh, our tempo in for a minivan that my uncle insisted I buy from him. So it was a, uh, a GMC minivan built on a truck chassis where you could actually fit a four by eight sheet of plywood in the back and stack it up. Uh, they had done some aftermarket modifications that only people of a certain age would do. So in their, um, in their minivan, there was a fan, uh, there were curtains, they installed curtains, a big trailer hitch to tow the boat. So it was the last motor vehicle I've owned when we moved to um, when we we took it with us to Seattle we took it back into Edmonton and uh, sold it to my father-in-law and then when we moved uh, over to Europe we never bought a car over here so that as a GMC S50 I, I really have to look it up uh, S15 minivan was uh, was the last vehicle I've ever owned maybe the last one I ever owned I don't know if we do go back or if we uh, do buy a car, it'll probably be electric, maybe an A3 or an S3. But um, but yeah, this was a very kind of personally transformative year, but musically a bit barren. I mean, there was obviously still, you know, there was, uh, you know, the second album, uh, that second album, but uh, Insomniac by, uh, uh, by Green Day, um, you know, the, the Foo Fighters second album was soon to be coming out. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of the same music, a lot of the same themes uh, for music coming along and spending time with the same friends at Edmonton. It was a very, very good sort of three and a half, four years that we spent there, made a lot of, uh, made a lot of connections and had a lot of good time with people. So I think that's about it for Trouble at the Hen House. So we will, um, oh, uh, and it is all that is there for Trouble to Hen House, but let's get into the mailbag. So uh, we got a, uh, you know, we have a, an email from Tom Hicks, who uh, likes the topic and the formats and adding in some personal water contacts. Uh, you know, the uh, you know music taste seems to 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 overlap with the Bare Naked Ladies uh, being a favorite group, and yeah, that. 
the yellow uh, yellow cassette. It's been been there. It's been a week. It's been it's been well. No, that that's not my shtick. Uh, so yeah, Tom and I are reading this. I think maybe we were we were separated at birth, Tom. So thanks for thanks for writing in, Jarrett. Again, thanks for letting me know I missed emergency, which is just insane because it's right in the middle of the document. And I wrote it up as opposed to, you know, this episode, which is a little bit more freestyling and, and kind of fun. But uh, but that's that's amazing. And then, you know, letter of the week, letter of the podcast was from uh, from Aaron Humphrey. So Aaron was uh, was is the younger brother of my friend uh, Stephen. Uh, from high school. So Aaron was, uh, you know, was around a lot because we used to spend a lot of time over at Stephen's place. Uh, and and he was there. So he made a role in our in our radio plays and our animated versions of, of comic books. And, uh, and, and in truth, I would think if Stephen and I were, you know, we're in high school now, we'd have started a podcast and be out annoying people. So Aaron, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Aaron says he was was a bit younger at the time, but does remember and like the hip. So he's he's got a copy of Fully Completely and picked up up to here and wrote apples at the same time. And it was uh, it was one of those things where you set it down, you pick it up, you picked up your favorites and in Violet Light and you know Gord Downey's album. And you know, I think you're never too it's never too early in life. It's never too late in life to be uh, to get involved in the hip. And you know, thank you for writing in, Aaron. I, I appreciate it. So it's still a little bit, you know, kind of gilding the lily to call it a mail bag as opposed to just a couple of letters. But I'd like to thank everybody for that. So I think uh, with that, we'll we'll leave it at that, and we'll be back to talk about live between us, the hips first live album and uh, the next album they did for for MCA Records. You've been listening to That Night in Toronto with Vince Savard. uh, Written, produced, and recorded and engineered by Vince Savard. Uh, If you want to get a hold of me, you can reach the podcast on the socials at at TNITpod on Twitter or TNITpod at gmail.com if you want to write something longer. So... Thanks for staying with us and we'll be back next time for Live Between Us.